We're seeing more and more people saying, I want to understand the stress of my employees. I want to understand what that cardiovascular load. I'm preparing for a meeting and I'm not prepared. It puts stress on your body. And just like a healthcare employee, you may not have run that marathon, but you may be stressed because a patient's died, because you don't know how to care for them. You've got something going on with your family members. Like that puts impact on your body that you're not necessarily able to perform the way you need to, to do whatever task is in front of you. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again today. Well, today I have a very special guest because not only is she awesome and you're going to hear all about her, we have a great topic, project that we're involved in together, but she was also my neighbor for many years and is still a friend. So I'm really excited. You're going to absolutely love her. Today, our guest is Ellen Riley. She's an industry leader that's focused on the intersection of healthcare technology and data. Ellen is the global head of healthcare and life sciences at Whoop, which we'll talk about today. That's a company that debuted in 2015. Many of you might be familiar with the Whoop strap, which is a wrist-worn device that continuously tracks biomarkers. And we'll talk about that later. She's led large organizations in driving change to transform and simplify business processes while delivering bottom line measurable benefits. And prior to group, she was the VP of Global Technology Partnerships at IQVIA. And Ellen has worked in a variety of pharmaceuticals. So she's also very well aware of the healthcare industry. And besides industry experience, she's partnered with Bearing Point PWC Consulting as well as healthcare and life sciences business at DocuSign. She is a graduate of LaSalle University, which if you were Facebook friends, you'll see how involved she is with that and very proud of that. And her bachelor of science is in computer science and then went to Drexel Lebeau School to receive her MBA. So very well qualified to talk about the topic today. This is another part of a long series about physician wellness. And we're going to really build upon what we've had we talked about Brian Ferguson. We mentioned Whoop a little bit, and we're just excited to have her. So, Ellen, thank you so much. Thanks, Tony. Excited to spend some time with you. See, I moved out in 2014. What year did you move to North Cornwall? 2002. Okay, so 12 years we were neighbors, and we've kept in touch. It's been great. Our dogs had the same name, just by coincidence, right? Two pennies. In fact, um, I've got so Penny here in the office. <laughs> oh boy, that's awesome. All right, Penny, how are you? Ellen, I don't know if you know this, but Lauren and I call you the Energizer Bunny. You probably have that name many, many times because you're constantly moving. I don't know if you ever rest. I follow you on Facebook or when we talk, you're always somewhere. You do so much work with Drexel. You're just all over the world, not only in business, 
you just have fun. So you're a great guest. But tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and how you ended up with Whoop right now, because that's what we're really going to talk about today. Sure. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. My father would bring us to Philadelphia to watch big five basketball games. So growing up, so there was no way I wasn't going to a big five school or college, LaSalle. I happenstance end up in pharmaceuticals. I applied for a job and found out I was going to work for Roar Pharmaceuticals making quaaludes after college. And then I really fell in love. I loved science. I loved biology. My mom used to help us dissect frogs. So, oh, wow. You know, the intersection of technology and data and science has really been what my career is about and evolving that and ending up at Whoop where it is about data and technology and how do we really help disrupt healthcare. So I think the journey went all different ways, but I think it all came together. My experience at Ikevia, the biggest data provider and clinical trials organization in the world, coupled with working at pharma and doing consulting, I just think it's all come together. So if I remember correctly, when you told me, you're pretty much at the point of your career where you were thinking that you're going to start to slow down, which I don't think is possible for you, by the way, but you were thinking about slowing down and then there's something about Whoop that just was perfect for you, right? Yeah. I worked with Mark McLaughlin, who's the chief business officer, really setting up the enterprise and business to business. I had worked with him at DocuSign and I had brought DocuSign's product to healthcare and life sciences organizations. There's a lot of regulations around signatures and privacy and he and I had crossed paths there. And when he was talking to Whoop, he was like, what do you know about the ability for physiological data? How can it help change healthcare? And we really started to talk about, you know, it's an opportunity not only in clinical trials and the advent of decentralized trials and patient engagement and really just taking that data. And to your really focused point, Tony, around doctors know a lot about the human body, but they don't always look in the mirror and look about their own data about their own human body. And it's really shining a spotlight on that of how can that data really change healthcare, both from a patient perspective, as well as a self-care perspective. So there's a lot of people out there that know Whoop because I was just away. I was in Detroit for some business and I must have saw Whoops everywhere. This is not video, but I have mine on now and I'm sure you have yours on, but Give us a few sentences on what the WHOOP is, just in case people don't know what it is. Yeah, so it's really just a simple device that collects a lot of specific data, your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your sleep, respiratory rate. It collects that data without really trying to impact your body in other ways, like there's no watch on it, there's no TV. It's really unobtrusive. It stays on you 24 by 7, so you can charge it while it's on your wrist, so you're not losing data. What it does is our app has a coaching capability to really say, what kind of behaviors do we need to change for you to bring the best of yourself every day, whether it's around your diet, your exercise, alcohol consumption, doing mindfulness exercises, resonance breathing. Like, what are all the things that work to really change your behavior? My favorite story, Tony talking about Penny. So my husband and I always joke. I always said, when the dog sleeps in the bed, I sleep better. And he's like, no way, that's not true. Well, I now have empirical data that says 
when Penny sleeps in the room, my REM and my sleep is so much deeper and better. So I'm able to prove that. So therefore, Penny gets to stay in the bed. How's that? In full disclosure, I do need to tell the audience that I am on the healthcare advisory board for Whoop because I was so impressed with it when Ellen told me about it. And please, I'm sure people will go and look it up further, but it gives you, basically it monitors your strain during the day and then your recovery while you sleep. And I think it's really cool to be able to see in the morning that when I start my day that I'm 33% recovered or 75% recovered. Brian Ferguson, who we had on about a year ago, talked about how he's doing some research with surgeons to look at their recovery and came up with some interesting, very preliminary data that basically said, if you think about it, it makes common sense that, you know, the surgeons on Fridays are much less recovered than they are on Monday. And so that's an important decision that might need to know. I'd say about 75% of our audience is healthcare, another 25% business. And many of those healthcare people are physicians. And I'm a physician, so I can tell you that what's exciting about this is that it takes the subjectivity out of whether you are recovered or not. I don't think I'm going to surprise any physicians or hurt any physicians' feelings when I tell them that we as physicians have big egos. And we had Dyke Drummond on, who is a expert in physician burnout. And he talked about how physicians have this S on their chest. And this big Superman and I can do anything. And I remember when I first started out before they had the blue laws of how long you can work, it was a badge of honor that, you know, I worked 36 straight hours without sleep. Well, I worked 40 hours without sleep, you know, and then it starts getting, oh, I haven't slept in two years, you know, and this is, (laughs) and we bragged about that. It was kind of like when your dad tells you he walked uphill both ways. But when I was an intern at Coney Island, I routinely went in on a Monday came home Tuesday night, went in on a Wednesday, came home Thursday night and you felt it, but it was the theory then was, well, if you could do it when you're tired, then you probably can do it when you're not tired. I'm not so sure that's sound theory because what happens to all the people that you're doing it when you were tired. And TV shows like really would highlight that. Like you would watch ER or the maybe or Grey's Anatomy and they're sleeping and they go and sleep for an hour between long shifts. I mean, it was celebrated instead of saying, wow, does this really help patient care? Does this help a nurse or a doctor do a better job that they are working really long shifts? And I think the pandemic, I mean, Tony, the biggest thing that got to me was that cover Time magazine, seeing doctors and nurses on the front line during the pandemic just overwhelmed. You know, Laura Brain committed suicide that beautiful doctor at NY Presby. It's like, that's really what resonated to me of why that's not okay to mental health and sleep are really important. And it really affects the mental health of our healthcare workers. And they're going to be in short supply. You're looking at workforce labor statistics. The amount of doctors and nurses are saying, do I really want to do this? And if their mental health isn't being looked after by society and in hospital administration that we're doing ourselves injustice. Yeah, we had Michael Myers on, who's a psychologist who specializes in physician depression, burnout, et cetera. And very famous, wrote an awesome book, Why Physicians Commit Suicide. And he talked a lot about that, that one physician commits suicide in the United States every day. That's the highest suicide rate ever. And a lot of that is that you have that big S on your chest and you don't want to admit that you're wrong. You're tired. 
And so what I love about the potential of the WHOOP, and there's other things out there we're really focused on. I just recently took a position as a chief wellness officer myself. What I love about it is that I said it takes away the subjectivity. And so if you ask any physician before they go into an operating room or before they take a shift, are you okay to practice at your peak performance? Zero percent will say no. I can just tell you that they're not going to admit that. They're going to be afraid that their colleagues are going to think that they're weak. And they were kind of told that they should work these 48-hour shifts. But I really see the future of this in medicine, and we'll talk about for other people, as, you know, let me see your data. And JCO and other accreditations will say, well, maybe a doctor is not going to be allowed to do a shift if he or she is at 30% recovery. And deep down inside, Ellen, that's going to be a great thing for doctors because now they can say, now we can act like, well, I could have done it. I could have done it, but they just, they wouldn't let me do it. You know, it's bull, but you know, I could have done it. But deep down inside, they're going, thank God, because I really wasn't prepared to do that. So I think it's got a lot of potential. There are a lot of major hospitals that are doing some studies on it right now. Can you tell us some of those that are, and some of the studies that are going on? Sure. So we're doing a thousand person study with UCSF and Las Palmas Hospital, which is a division of HCA. And we're really looking at the data and really understanding and the coaching of those frontline healthcare workers. We're also doing some work with Apollo MD, which is an outsourcing venture capital business, which supplies doctors, hospital systems. And you have shift workers. This isn't just frontline healthcare workers. You're working shifts. So, and a lot of times you can't change your shift or you have to work overnight And so your circadian rhythms are disrupted. It's how do we help you through better ways of sleeping and doing things so that you can bring your best to your job so it doesn't impact the patient. And I think we're a long way to get to that point. But once we do get to the point, I think this will really, really help. There's a lot of data out there and maybe you're doing something with this. There's a lot of data out there looking at life expectancy from people who work days, people who work nights, to people who work rotating shifts, and not just in healthcare, but police officers, fire department, factory workers. Is that something that Wolf is looking at too? Like, it'd be really interesting to see what the average recovery is from somebody who works all day compared to the average company who work all night, because we know they sleep much less. Yeah, I don't think specifically we've done that comparison yet, but it sounds like something I should put in the roadmap that would make it pretty interesting. We have a lot of data from our consumers and now healthcare workers. And as you can imagine, the goal is getting people to look at the impact of when they drink alcohol or when they smoke or when they have caffeine. And if they change those behaviors, does it positively help their sleep or their performance or going back to your point about your recovery. And we do see when people wear Whoop and collecting that data and they listen to the coaching, they do change their behavior. I know the difference when I have one glass of wine versus two glasses of wine, my sleep really gets disruptive. And we all know that. We all take science classes and know that alcohol is going to impact your sleep. But when the data is right there in your face saying, you know, you had two glasses versus one glass, how close it was to bedtime, you see the numbers. And 
as a scientist, you go, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have that second glass of wine, or maybe I should go to happy hour and not do it at dinner. Yeah. A lot of people out there that think alcohol makes you sleep better. We know that it does not. Last night was Lauren and I's anniversary and we Ubered to a uh, restaurant because we knew we were going to have some drinks. And so I had a couple bourbons and my whoop this morning told me that I did not sleep well. <laughs> so, and, and I'm and tired. It's pre- and it's pretty hard to fight that. You look at the date and you go, okay, nobody's saying you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't do those things, but should you maybe do a brain surgery that next day? Maybe not. Or maybe you should think about when you do those things. And so I think that's the guidance and hope impacts people's behavior. Yeah, I know you're in the healthcare division, but a lot of people are using this for training purposes or if they're to just to get healthy. I mean, the, the industry and gyms and people working out and running and et cetera, it calculates your strain by looking at your heart rate variability and all that. Would you say that that's the majority of people that are using Whoop right now? I think it was. I think strain is not just running a marathon or running, you know, up the Empire State Building. Strain could be you're in the middle of a really stressful meeting. I will tell you my highest strain, I was at a fundraiser and my mother fell in the bathroom and she asked for help. And I went in and she was on the ground. That's the highest strain my lupus calculated was a 20. I was stressed. So we're seeing more and more people saying, I want to understand the stress of my employees. I want to understand what that cardiovascular load. I'm preparing for a meeting and I'm not prepared. It puts stress on your body. And just like healthcare employee, you may not have run that marathon, but you may be stressed because a patient's died because you don't know how to care for them. You've got something going on with your family members. Like that puts impact on your body that you're not necessarily able to perform the way you need to, to do whatever task is in front of you. Yeah, we do often overlook the strain that's involved with just stress and our everyday stressful things that happen in life. I've kind of been looking at that. It's kind of great. It comes on your phone. And so I'm having an extremely stressful day. It doesn't have to be at work. It can be whatever, something personal. You look at your iPhone and it says your strain is really up there. And so it's kind of amazing that it can, by using heart rate variability and other biomarkers, that it can tell you that you're having a stressful day. And it can tell you from personal, it's, it correlates pretty darn good. The other thing it's done for me is I'm 58 years old and I just had a hip replacement, but now I'm all better. But I got to tell you, my exercise is really abysmal. I just so busy. I'm always in front of the computer. And I kind of look at my stream when I'm doing exercise as a little badge of honor. The other day, my son and I played golf and I was really mad because it was golf cart. Uh, yeah, cart. <laughs> We're having the same problem. There's no rain anywhere. So it's a lot of work to go back and forth from that cart to your ball. It's in the woods. <laughs> And I play with my son-in-law and some other good golfers and golf path only for those golfers out there. If you're a good golfer, it's not a big deal because you're just driving up and you walk to your ball. But if you play like me, where your ball's all the way to the left and all the way to the right, I said to TJ, I'm walking more than if I just walked the path. And so I played Friday and it was car path only. And my stream was 18. Yes, I was 17 that day. Because you're up and down hills, you're looking for your ball, you took the wrong club, you didn't take, you know. So, so you, yeah, you can see it and you go, wow, that was a lot of work. 
And so I was very angry during the whole 18 holes that it was cart path only. But then I looked at my whoop afterwards. I go, oh, I got a 17. So you know what? It's, that's a good 17. It's not a stress 17. And then you look at your monthly thing and you're like, oh, okay, now I got. So it kind of gives you, on the other hand, it also gives you some incentive to actually do some work. And I think that this is probably the future of all of our healthcare. And non-intrusive, right? So you're not doing DNAs and you're not doing a whole bunch of tests. You can kind of monitor yourself. And I think it's funny that people are monitoring their alcohol intake. Oh, one glass is good. I slept better with one glass. So now I <laughs> drink a glass. Uh, well, I, I so. think what we're doing differently from the other wearables out there too is you can wear it on your bicep and your healthcare provider is a surgeon or you can't have things on your wrist. Right. And we have it in clothing too. So if you don't want to wear it on any of your extremities. You can wear it in a bra or underwear. So I think this technology is going to continue to evolve. As people say, this data can give me feedback to my body. And what can I do to help change my life experience? What do you think is the best for you personally? You've probably been wearing it. I know you've been wearing it a lot longer than me. What do you think the best thing that it's helped you do to change your life in a positive way by using it every day? Well, I think my sleep, like through a annual LaSalle beach party on Saturday and my recovery was really bad. I didn't sleep well. I had some alcohol and last night I was in bed by 10 o'clock. The night before I was in bed by 10, like said, Ellen, you need to go to bed between these hours to get back your sleep debt. And in the last three nights I've been in bed early. So I think the sleep side, I think exercise side, like I had a really bad flight back from somewhere and I had a meeting that I had been working for months to set up and my recovery was like 22% because the flight was delayed, a lot of uh, getting back into Newark. I did not do well in that meeting. It did not perform well. I was not prepared. I wasn't articulate. It was painful and I should have just moved the meeting and said, you know, I don't feel well or something came up. Good news is it didn't hurt me long-term from a business perspective, but definitely the data had definitely said, Ellen, you are not at your best and you shouldn't be doing this. And that's when you make mistakes. And I'm not in there doing life-saving surgery or trying to administer some physiological test to a patient, but I can only imagine that doctors and nurses and physician assistants and like that information can help them make that decision and say, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, or maybe I should let somebody else do it. And that Superman mentality that you talk about, Tony, I think that will give them the you know, license to say, it's okay for somebody else to pick it up. Yeah, I just gave a pretty important keynote speech Monday in Detroit to a bunch of business leaders. And now that I'm getting used to using my Whoop, I really paid attention to Sunday night. I flew in on Sunday I knew that my speech, I had to be there at 9 a.m. I knew that I was experiencing some stress because it was a particularly important speech because I'm speaking more to business people now than to healthcare. And so I kept glancing at my whoop to say, what time is it? Should I go to bed? Because I really was aware that, and it's usually earlier than you think. You know, normally I wouldn't think about going to bed before 11, but it was 9.35 and my whoop goes, time to go to bed. I'm like, really? 9.35? But admit I would do it more like 10, 15, but I woke up and I was 75% recovered and I was ready to go. And so I think the implications for the average person, and you're right, for me, I work with the little premature babies 
I'm not allowed to wear any jewelry, right? They track germs. And so I get into the hospital in the morning and I change it very quickly. It takes two seconds to put it on my bicep and then I wear it on the bicep. And then when I get home, I put it back on my wrist Yeah, because I can't sleep with the bicep on. It's just annoying. So I put it back on my wrist. So it's got great implications. And people out there might be saying right now, what does this have to do with difficult conversations? Because that's the title of this podcast. And we're going to get to that. But really, it is a difficult conversation. It's a conversation about our own well-being that we don't want to have with ourselves. As I always say, many conversations that are difficult are conversations with ourselves. And it's a difficult conversation because we're still pushing this narrative about doctors and nurses with the burnout and how we could help them with that. There's wellness programs going on all over the country. I'm, as I said, I just took a position as a chief wellness officer and we could use this whoop for real data just to first make people aware of their own wellness. And then maybe somewhere down the line in the real future would be to take that subjectivity out of whether you can work or not. In the meantime, while we're working on this and doing this, maybe get more, try to attract more doctors and nurses into the field, physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners. So that we have that extra doctor or we have somebody who can't perform at their best. We can say it's time to fill in or et cetera. So I don't know if I warned you about this one, Ellen, but sometimes I don't warn people about this question because I'm kind of testing them to see if they've listened to my other podcasts. But you've been in business many, many years. You've been a boss. And my keynote on Monday was having difficult conversations in business and how we navigate through those with poise and ease and you have such a great personality and I'm sure you're good at it, but tell me what's the, to be your personal life too, what's the most difficult conversation you've had in your life and give us some advice on how you navigate it through that. I was 27 years old and I was a manager and I had a Vietnam war vet working for me and he had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and he wore like an old woven tie and he wore short sleeve shirt that was made out of polyester and he didn't have a lot of money. I knew he had a couple of children and his wife wasn't working. So I knew how much he made. And I was working for a pharmaceutical company and pharmaceutical executives dress well. They spend money on clothing. It's very much about image. And people weren't listening to this guy in meetings. And that was when you wore shirts and ties in meetings and they weren't listening to him. And it wasn't because of his content. It was because how he dressed. They just looked at it as this guy. And I had to sit down and here I'm 27 single. My income is just for myself. And I had to sit down and tell somebody that what they're wearing is impacting somebody hearing their message and telling him nicely and trying to tell that story. So that just investing in a crisp white cotton shirt, a new tie, Doing it delicate, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to tell somebody is because they weren't listening to him just because how he looked. And hopefully society has evolved since those conversations. But boy, that was a really hard thing for me as a young manager to tell somebody. And he didn't. And it did change the way people listened to him. Give us some insight on how you, so now you're getting ready to make this conversation, have this conversation. You're taking your deep breath. How'd you navigate through it? I, Any tips you can give us? I practiced. I really, I mean, practice is really important. Many of us tend to have conversations that are spontaneous or say, I can go into this, but I practiced. I practiced on the story and how I was going to tell that story with my roommate at the time saying, okay, 
because I didn't want him to be uneasy about it. I didn't want him to feel less than a person just because, I mean, I know didn't have a lot of money. Practice is really important, especially when I know you talk about that in some of your podcasts, Tony, even the training you do, giving doctors and breaking bad news. I think that practice is important as we have some of those difficult conversations. That's really dead on great advice. We developed the acronym when I teach doctors and even business people that are going into a conversation. We'll do a little improv going in, just like you said. Well, I might use that one here. Here's a scene I want you to go tell them. But the P, the acronym is program and the P is for plan or practice. I mean, it is absolutely amazing to me that when I ask people during my workshops, all right, you're getting ready to go into this difficult conversation to speak to this Vietnam vet about his wardrobe. What was your plan when you went in? And they'll say, what do you mean? Like your plan, like, how were you going? Well, I was just going to go in and wing it. Like, no, this doesn't go well. You need to, as we say in medicine, before you go and speak to that patient, stop, think about what you're going to say. Imagine what it's like to be them. Take your pulse, calm down and come up with a plan. You'll just walk in and wing it because bad things happen when you do that. We had Paul Falcone on, if anybody wants to go back and listen to him. I think the name of his book was 100 Difficult Conversations in the Workplace or Human Resources, something like that. And his book's amazing. It's how do you tell somebody that you need to cover up your tattoos? How do you tell somebody that as a human resource person that you're not showering and you have body odor and it's offending the other people? And each one is designed to help have these conversations with employees and doing it in the most kind and compassionate manner like you did. And so he did well after you he uh, did. He changed his wardrobe. And, yeah. He did. And, you know, he went and bought two white shirts. I'm sure he wore those a lot and changed how people viewed him. And that's sad that that's a reflection on others judging people. But we know in society, and I think it's just gotten worse maybe with all the Instagram and TikTok and I worked for Abvi. I mean, everything we were doing was around cosmetics. So it's really about how people look and sometimes, and that's unfortunate. And things are a little different now. I went to visit a major company in advertising. I went to go visit them and did a little meeting there. And I walked in and I mean, this is a major player. And there were 25 millennials and Gen Zs on their laptop, half of them sitting on the floor with their concert t-shirts and their shorts and being very productive. So it's a little different now, but in some industries, it's not. Advertising probably can get away with it, but you wouldn't go see your doctor if he was wearing a Def Leppard black t-shirt. So, <laughs> Well, definitely not <laughs> Def Leppard, but if he was wearing a Bruce Springsteen shirt, maybe I would. <laughs> in New Jersey too, definitely. Yeah, exactly. so that's pretty funny. Ellen, in closing, where do you see the whoop going and what drives you to keep doing this? I mean, what is it the inside? I mean, you don't only do things for money. What gets you excited about the whoop in the future? I think where this is going, I do think given the labor shortage in healthcare, people are going to have to really invest in this. The government passed the Lorna Brain Act in March around awareness of mental health for healthcare providers. And I think that a lot of times when the government wakes up, wants to spend money to do it, and 
compliance and regulation, people are going to change their behavior. And I think we owe it to society to look at our healthcare workers and take care of them. And people need to take, we want people, I'm going to be old. (laughs) I want to know that there's going to be more nurses. You know, it's not going to be one to eight. It's going to be one to five again. I want to know that the doctors can be prepared when I have that brain surgery or whatever I have for Alzheimer's that I'm going to have. I think we as a society need to do something. And I think the pandemic just exacerbated mental health and it made it okay to talk about it. Credit to the Simone Biles and everybody that talked about mental health. I mean, people lashed out at them and I'm like, they're talking about something that's so important that people don't talk about. You talked about the suicide of one doctor a day. We've got to talk about those things. We have to make people understand that that impacts all of us and think the opportunity to tell that story and how provider organizations can start to take care of their employees and their frontline healthcare workers is a really important story. Yeah, I'm excited to be involved in this. It's the future. Medical errors are the top three reasons that people die in the United States each year. And so we're doing what we can to help that. I think this is just another piece of the puzzle that we're going to be doing. So, Alan, this has been great. I know you're crazy, crazy busy. I don't know, probably traveling all over the world again. I appreciate your time. Where should people go to find more about the Whoop or to contact you? Sure. So you can get me at ellen.riley at whoop.com, W-H-L-O-P.com. You can go to whoop, W-H-L-O-P, unite, U-N-I-T-E.com. You can find more about our offerings in healthcare. Fantastic. And if you're in healthcare, if you're in business, I just, one of my best friends had one on the other day and I said, oh, you're wearing a whoop. And he said, yeah, my 400 salesmen were given these whoops by their boss. So it's for everybody. I'm excited to be involved in it. Excited to have you here today and honored to hear my friend and always have a great time when we see each other. So thanks so much, Alan. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Tony. If you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and download it. Tell your friends about it. We have previous episodes. We've re- almost on 200 episodes now. So pretty exciting. Please, if you need to contact me, you can contact me through our website, theorsiniway.com. We'll put all of Ellen's uh, contact information in the show notes. And so you can reach her and also the links to whoop.com. So thank you, everybody. Again, thank you, Ellen. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.